All right, as they're making their way down, go ahead and grab your Bibles. Turn to the book of John. And I also want you to find one more spot in your Old Testament. We'll flip back and forth a little bit. We are in, let me tell you what they are. John chapter 1. You find that? Flip, flip, flip. John chapter 1. And also find Exodus chapter 34. So put a finger there and a finger in John, and we'll be in both places here in a few minutes. Let me, um, uh, let me tell you where we've been. This is, uh, this is the third week in our, um, in our series on the theology of Christmas. Uh, we wanted to spend some time looking at uh, what Christmas means. Uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke give you the story of Christmas. They give you the events and the accounts. But what John does in his gospel Uh, and we've said this the past few weeks, is he expands and puts the truth of the incarnation into categorical terms, into light and darkness, into the word and mankind, into these thematic ideas that are all drawn together. Uh, And last week, we looked at the truth of Jesus being the light and the light to mankind. Well, this week, we're going to look at a text in just... uh, five little bitty verses uh, that has about 10 different ways you could screw it up, become a heretic, leave the ministry, and get exiled. So, no big deal. Uh, the church in the, in the early phases, about 300 AD, uh, had to have moments from about 325 to about 790 AD. The church had to have these moments where they got together and they clarified the doctrine of God. The first council was the Council of Nicaea that gave you the Nicene Creed. And the Nicene Creed comes out of difficulty that you had over understanding uh, specifically the deity of Christ. About six or seven different councils had to deal with the incarnation. Uh, Because the incarnation, let's put it for lack of a better term, is hard to understand. Would you agree with that? That it's not a doctrine that is really easy for you and I to grasp. What does it mean that the word became flesh? What does it mean that God became man? I I don't, that, that whole idea is intentionally meant to fry your circuits. And pastors and bishops throughout the years kind of uh, broke their intellect on the truth of the incarnation. So at the, church, at the Council of Nicaea, you had a guy named Arius. Arius declared that Jesus was not, as John 1 said, God, but he was the first of God's creations, and through him God created everything. Arius said that he didn't share divinity, the word did not share divinity with God. Major problem. And what it took the church and these bishops doing is getting together and saying, no, that's heresy, that's wrong in terms of how we understand Jesus. You have other ones that come along. A guy named Nestorius came along. These aren't super important. They're all heretics who are dead now. So, uh, But I want to show you that throughout history, you and I have, our, have uh, inherited and you and I have proclaimed the faith about the person and work of Jesus Christ. Uh, that is a truth that I said is hard to understand, but that we proclaim as from God. Nestorius was a guy who believed that Jesus was a bit of a schizophrenic. He had a divine and a human side. 
but there was, he denied what was called the hypostatic union, that there was no unity in the person. It was Jesus the schizophrenic, and when the schizophrenic did a miracle, it was the divine side working. When he talked and ate a burger, it was the human side. But there was never a unity in this person. Uh, you had a guy named Eutychus. Eutychus decided that the human and divine aspects of Christ were like uh, yellow and green. And then when the Christ event happened, they mixed into something else, which made Jesus less than God and better than humans, but not fully either. You had other theologians who said, well, there must be a divine will in Christ or a single working nature on the inside, that he's certainly human and he looks like a human, but he's kind of like Superman. He never really experiences life as I experience because he always has a divine will inside. And theologians said, no, he's got a human and divine. He's fully God. He's fully man. You with me? Now, we're going to jump into this text here today. Paul, when he writes to the uh, young pastor Timothy, I love that he says this. This is from 1 Timothy 3. He says, great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. And I love that Paul says that to Timothy, just so that Timothy knows. Timothy, this is hard to understand. You might not get it. But it's something that we hold to, and it's something we proclaim. And it's something that my adoption and my salvation, and my eternity rests on. And so does yours. So, John chapter 1. Let's pray, and uh, we'll see what this text has to say to us here today. Father in heaven, we pray as we come here to this text that you would give us clarity and insight that you would give us the courage to proclaim what we see here on the written page, although at sometimes we don't understand it, it doesn't quite make sense, but that you would give us eyes to faith, of faith to apprehend what you have written in your word, that would we would reorder our thoughts and affections, our ambitions, our desires, our theologies even, as a result of what the very simple statements are here in John's Gospel. Father, make it clear in the way that I ought to speak that I would honor the truth of your word that says the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The word that was with God in the beginning. The word that was God and that was with God. So Father, bless our time and our study. We pray for a divine sense through your spirit this morning of wonder that we would be men and women who are awed again in what you have done. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, I want to give a little bit of a running start here. You want to look at John 1, look at verse 12 and 13 just again. Because 114 begins with a conjunction, and that's annoying to me uh, when you begin right in the middle of, uh, of a theme. But I had to stop because there's lots here. Uh, look up at, I'm going to start with conjunction anyway in verse 12, so... That's what you get. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name. Remember, that's where we ended last week. We talked about the receipt of receiving and the theology, the faith and the truth that are in the person of the word. 
to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Now, if you're gonna take notes and you're a note taker, I want you to circle children of God because I'm gonna make a big deal about that in a little bit. But he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Irenaeus, the early uh, church commentator, uh, said that the summary of 1 through 13 is about is what we're about to look at here in 14 through 18, that he's going to distill the truths that we've seen. I, I, it's been unrolled slowly over these past couple weeks, hasn't it? You've been waiting kind of with this divine emergency break on. For We haven't even mentioned, you know, I told this in the beginning. We haven't even said Jesus' name yet. You know that? That John has been so slow in building your theology of the word and light and dark and mankind and creation and what Jesus has done. Well, today, you can have a divine exhale because Jesus is going to be mentioned. Okay, so here's your summary of what all of what has come before. Look at John 1, verse 14, and the word. Now, remember what the word is. If you're going to define the word, you're going to get it from John 1, chapter, John chapter 1, verse 1, right? In the beginning was the word. He's before time. The word was with God. He is in intimate relationship, face-to-face, we said, with God. And the word was God, that he's co-equal and co-eternal in personal relationship with God of heaven, the word and God. The word became flesh. So if you're taking notes, this verse is going to be broken down. Actually, this clause of this verse, because we're not even there to the whole verse yet, is I'm going to give you two big truths that are here in the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Is that the word became like us and the word came to be with us. Okay? The word became like us. Now, you've got kind of a theological minefield here, don't you? in that word became. What does became mean? Did it mean the word changed into flesh and stopped being the word? No, you don't have that. Did it mean that the word seemed to be flesh, which is another heresy, which I haven't mentioned thus far, another heresy called docetism, from the word that means to seem that it seemed like he was human, but he was really Superman. He was really uber-divine. He was really different than what he seemed like. And the best place for us to understand a little bit more of what John in nine words packs together with his theology is something from Paul's writings over in Philippians chapter 2. So flip over to Philippians chapter 2 just for a minute, and let's see how Paul describes this moment of the incarnation. Flip to your right, John Acts. Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians. Philippians chapter 2. This is, in, this is a passage for Paul that is called the kenosis passage or the passage about the emptying of Jesus Christ. What exactly happened in the incarnation? How did God become flesh? Chapter 2, verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus who though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, literally to be held onto with his hand. But he opened his hand. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Flip back to John. So 
when the Word becomes flesh, he doesn't stop becoming the Word. This is the truth of the incarnation, that Jesus Christ is fully God and fully man at the same time. Steve, how does that work? I don't know. But it is. Colossians chapter 2 says the whole uh, fullness of deity dwells in him in bodily form. Hebrews chapter 1 says that he is the exact imprint of his nature. He's the Greek word is character. The exact imprint, the mark of God is put in the person of the word become flesh. That the word took on the voluntary restrictions of being a human. When Jesus walks this earth, he never does a miracle for himself. You know that? He always does a miracle for others, but he never leverages his deity for himself. Why? Because you can't and I can't. So that when the word becomes flesh, he is enrobed in humanity and he is, he's mandated. He's voluntarily restricting his attributes for the sake of you and I to actually be human as you and I are human. He became really like us. Hebrews says that um, because the children share in flesh and blood, he had to be a partaker of the same. So the word became flesh. He became like us. Really and truly like us. You ever feel like Jesus isn't really like you? He doesn't sweat like me. He doesn't experience life in a sinful world like me. But then you read the accounts of Jesus in the Gospels, and you begin to see that Jesus wept over death. Jesus uh, saw suffering and was moved. Jesus had prayers that were not answered. Jesus understands what it's like to be you and what it's like to be me. Is that good news? Hebrews goes on to say that we don't have somebody who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but was tested in every way as we are, yet without sin. So he really entered in to humanity. Number two, look at the rest of the verse. The word became flesh, and it dwelt among us. Uh, literally, the Greek says he tabernacled, he pitched a tent among us, that his incarnation was for a time and a season where he was really with humanity. Right? Where was he born? In Bethlehem, in a manger. He wasn't born in a palace. He wasn't born as an NBA superstar. He wasn't born uh, wealthy. He was impoverished and born into true humanity, and he took up residence with us. That this is John's way of saying what Matthew and Luke call the, uh, the fulfillment of Isaiah 7, where he is God with us, and they called him Emmanuel. So that he became like us, and he became with us. He drew near to us. Do you know what good news that is? Nothing in the passage that we've seen thus far, there's not one thing that mankind has done to deserve the word becoming flesh. Do you know that? There's no ritual, there's no system, there's no uh, method in which we called the word down. All of John chapter 1 is divine initiative. That the word became flesh, he came to be like us, and the word dwelt with us. He, he drew near to you and I. Now, what does that mean? 
It means that in the incarnation, Jesus is willing to draw near to you no matter what your situation is. Do you believe that? You know, I will have people from time to time that I talk to or disciple who will really, really wrestle with whether or not God can hear their prayers. I know they hear Jesus' prayers, but God doesn't hear my prayers the same way he hears Jesus' prayers because God's way up there and he's uh, disconnected and he's not really involved in my day-to-day. He doesn't really feel my pain and suffering and difficulty of life in this sinful world. He's kind of an untouchable deity and the incarnation squashes that reality. The incarnation says he draws near to us. Who's us in the context? Those who received him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And he says, I'm coming near to you. Number two, it means that if you are a human and you have human issues and human problems, that Jesus applies to everywhere your humanness touches. Now, that's hard to believe, too, because a lot of what we do as Christians or just people who uh, are spiritually minded is we have a disconnect in our life between sacred things and secular things, right? When I'm praying, it's really spiritual stuff, but when I'm eating orange juice and sausage, it's really not. And what the incarnation shows us is that Jesus now applies. The truth of the incarnation means that Jesus matters everywhere that you have a human issue. In every single place, the incarnation says that he will draw near into those human situations. You ever feel like you have something that's too stupid to pray about? And the incarnation says that if it's human-related, Jesus can identify, speak to, and incarnate into that situation. you believe that? That in your marriage, in your parenting, in your work, even in your driving, that Jesus could apply? So the incarnation is meant for you to go, God, I don't totally understand, but I can't believe you would draw near to me. I can't believe that when I come and I lay hold of the fact that I believe that you are who you say you are, that you really draw near and that your truth really applies to my life right here, right now. That's what the incarnation means. That's the best news in the world. That he draws near to you. He draws near to me. Now, let's see our response. Look at the remainder of the verse. That's pretty good for the incarnation, right? And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son. Now, I'm going to stop right there. How did the disciples do it recognizing Jesus' glory? No bueno, right? No bueno. They didn't do too good. They didn't understand. In fact, the whole book of John is written in such a way that you would believe that Jesus is the Christ and my believing have life in his name. The book is written in such a way that there are signs and these moments that declare Jesus to be who he says he is. That John starts with John chapter 1, the prologue, to introduce to you the drama of the narrative and what's about to happen. But every step of the way, John chapter 2 is the beginning of Jesus' signs when he turns the water into wine, that you would recognize this is the word become flesh. He, Jesus, is God. Jesus is man. And we have seen his glory. Who are the people who see 
the glory of Jesus. It's those who received him, who believed in his name, who he gave the right to become children of God. You want to grow in your apprehension and wonder and understanding of who God is? Grow in your understanding and apprehension and wonder of who Jesus is. And you will behold glory. The longer you walk with Jesus, the more glorious he becomes. Young guys, younger than me, old guys, older than me, am I right? Young guys, you don't know yet. You got to walk with Jesus a little more. And he gets more glorious and more amazing, and I can't believe he is who he says he is and what he has done, and it begins to fry your circuits. And John says, we've seen him. Now, I'm going to make a bigger deal about this next week in 1 John 1 when John writes his epistle as to what the theology of his incarnation means. So hang on and come back next week, and we'll talk about why that's such a big deal. But we've seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Is it really 1051? Welcome to our six-part series on John 1, 14 through 18. If you're watching online, hang on till about 2. All right. Uh, okay. You see what changed in this verse? We'll keep moving. <clears throat> you see what changed in the verse? What have we, how have we described God in John chapter 1? God, word, spirit. With me? Did you see how the Trinity just changed with the incarnation? I don't know if that's heresy or not. Al, I'm not, help me. If that's heresy, I might, okay, a little bit. A little bit of heresy. Something happened in the incarnation for you and I to understand God better. It becomes the lightning rod for the Jews in Jesus' ministry. In John chapter 5, Jesus heals a guy on the Sabbath. The Pharisees get really, really bent out of shape because Jesus is doing work on the Sabbath. And he says, uh, I'm working. My father is working. We're both working at the same time doing my father's will because the Sabbath is made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And the Jews get all grumpy. And in John chapter 5, it says he's making God himself equal with God. Which means Jesus is declaring to have the same prerogative as God himself does. And what Jesus does in his incarnation is declare something massively important for you and I in the way that we understand God. He calls God his father. He uses an analogy that continues throughout the book of John that will explain God for you and me. And when he calls him, when John says as the only son, it's used by Jesus himself in John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. It's used in Genesis 22 when God says to Abraham, Abraham, take your son, your only son, whom you love. It's a claim to divine exclusivity and peculiarity that this is the only one that can declare to us and explain to us what John will say in a minute, who the Father is. That he has, we are children of God, which is why I had you circle that. He is the one and only divine Son. Now, we've, excuse me, we've seen his glory. Glory is the only, as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, I don't have time to go there because it's 1050 something else. But I was going to take you to Exodus 34. Exodus 34 is the divine name that God gives to Moses. The book of Exodus is a progressive revelation of God. In Exodus chapter 3, 
God appears to Moses and tells Moses, tell the people of Israel, I am has sent you, right? In Exodus chapter 6, God tells Moses something similar. He says, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham as God Almighty, but by my name, the Lord, I did not reveal myself to them. Then you get to Exodus chapter 34. Exodus chapter 34, Moses requests to see the glory of God, and God tells him what? Say no. He tells him no. No man can see me and live, but I will pass by you, and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, the Lord, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. It's the same idea here. If you have a covenant love idea and faithfulness, it can also be translated truth in the Old Testament. You have here a claim of equality with God again. Would you strike some points, if you're an English teacher, would you take some points off from John for redundancy? We get it already, John. But John keeps driving this nail. He's full of grace and truth. Now skip verse 15 just for a second. I don't like to skip it, but verse 15 is repeated in verse 30 later on in the chapter, and I'm going to tell you why he does that for just a minute. But it's a, a parenthetical remark on the ministry of John the Baptist. Look at verse 16. From his fullness, as he continues, we have all received grace upon grace. Your Bible may have grace in place of grace. Some folks think that's the Holy Spirit, that as you walk with God, the longer you live, the more amazed you are at grace, the more you have experiences of God's grace being poured out in your life as you mature. While that's true, I don't think it's true here. Look at what he goes on to say. Look at verse 17. For, now you see how he's building his case? For, the law was given through Moses. Would you describe the law as grace? John does. He calls the law the grace of God. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. It's not replacement, it's continuity. You know, when you have a conversation with somebody who does not know the Lord, one of the most important things that you can do is tell them where they stand in their relationship with God. Do you know what the law does for us? It tells us and declares for us where we stand in our relationship with God, how far we are from being in right relationship with God, how far we are from the standards that God requires for true relationship with him. It talks about his holiness and his purity and his righteousness. This is the foundation of Paul's writing in the book of Romans, that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You and I, when it comes to, to keeping the law, have no hope. We are constantly and always exposed as failures. And that is the grace of God. Continued in the person of Jesus Christ. Because what do you need once you find out you are not right with God? You need a substitute. You need somebody who stands and mediates the relationship between you and God who pays for your sin and gives you his perfect righteousness that you and I might be called children of God. You believe that? That's what John says. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. 
Now, why is that phrase from John there? Why in the world does John the Apostle include a quote from John the Baptist that he repeats in just a few verses later in verse 30? Why does he do that? Let me tell you why I think he does that. Because as John is communicating through his prologue, he's, he's naming witnesses. He's building the case that Jesus is the God-man. And he does it by quoting the greatest and final Old Testament prophet, John the Baptist. And then he mentions that Jesus is the continuity of the grace of God that was initially revealed in who? Moses. Remember on the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus is transfigured before Peter, James, and John, and his clothes become radiant and brilliant white. Mark says, whiter than any launderer could bleach them. And who appears with Jesus? Moses and Elijah. Thank you, Marcos. Elijah and Moses. The typical, uh, the, the head of the Mosaic order and the head of the prophetic order. Who does Jesus say John is? John says, uh, Jesus says, John is Elijah if you're willing to accept it. Which means in John's prologue right here, you have the affirmation of the prophetic order and the affirmation of the Mosaic order coming together in a single individual. One commentator said this, when Jesus Christ, the word became flesh, came on the scene, full of covenant faithfulness and love, the Old Testament mosaic and prophetic order rose and applauded. See, you've got to read your Old Testament uh, holding your breath. Because you and I are waiting for the fulfillment of the anticipation of the entire Old Testament. And when John writes verse 18, you go, there he is. Look at verse 18. No one has ever seen God. Now, if you read Exodus 33, the paragraph in Exodus 33 before Exodus 34, where God reveals his divine name to Moses, Moses has a question and he says, uh, I want to see your glory. And God says, you can't see my glory because no man can see me and live. And if you are back there in Exodus 33, you will see a cross-reference to John 1, verse 18. See, all throughout your Old Testament, not only are we holding our breath, waiting for the divine revelation of the Word who has become flesh, but there's a divine restraint because of sin. There's this constant longing that, to restore what we have lost in Genesis chapter 3 where God and man and woman can be in right relationship without sin. And God says, I cannot expose and reveal myself to you. I will destroy you. Until John 1, 18. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. John, uh, John could use two words uh, for make him known. One means a, 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 an accumulation of knowledge. Uh, and he doesn't use that word. He uses a rarer word 
Uh, it's the word that we get the word exegete from, or to explain. But it's, it's a little bit even more colored than that. It means to tell the whole story. It's used in, in Luke's writings to explain uh, day by day everything that had happened, which means the divine drama that John chapter 1 is unfolding for us is this revelation that Jesus will now begin to explain to us really what God is like. That he will make known what it looks like to know and love and understand God. Do you want to grow in your intimacy with God this year? Then you need to grow in your knowledge and intimacy of Jesus Christ. Do you want to grow in your understanding of who God is and what he likes and what he doesn't like, what angers him, what brings him joy, what is uh, uh, important to him in the way that life ought to work? Then you need to grow in your understanding of who Jesus Christ is. That he is the, the keyhole that opens the truth about who God is. If you're going to falsify a religion, you have to falsify a Christ. You have to have a substitute person that can give you the answers, the deceptive answers about mankind and sin and redemption and healing and restoration and all of those things that this is the uncounterfeitable Christ who has now dwelt among us. See, Christians uh, are not merely rationalists. You believe that? There's truths that we lay hold of and apprehend and we grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ, but we are far from being pure rationalists. When John is writing to the Greek world, they are dealing with this concept. We've said this in the beginning of logos that is the reason or the divine mind. But they would not look at the incarnation positively because they think it would reduce divinity from their standpoint. We're not mere rationalists. We're also not mere mystics. There is a spiritual experience to our Christian faith, is there not? That Paul in Ephesians prays that you might know the height and depth and length and breadth and low the love of Christ, right? That surpasses knowledge. That there's a spiritual experience to our Christian faith as well. But we're not mere mystics. We don't float around on feelings all the time declaring what we feel to be true. Because the incarnation says that the divine word, the eternal God, became man and came down to experience what you and I experience. So we can neither be purely subjective and purely rational. You with me? Rather, when a Christian begins to understand who God is, he recognizes that Jesus applies everywhere to his life and that Jesus secures divine truths that lay hold of heavenly realities. That Christians at their foundation are not rationalists or mystics, but Christians are worshipers. Worshipers who are amazed at the wonder of the incarnation and what God has done to send us the Christ. So you're going to have a tendency and a temptation to fall off on either side, but the incarnation balances us, doesn't it? It brings us back away from mere subjectivity and mysticism. 
and it draws us away from the cold, hard rationality of pure, uh, of truth that is disconnected. The incarnation, listen, is meant to recapture the joy. I said this when we started this series, that every Christmas movie tries to capture wonder. It tries as best they can to capture the awe of the season. And when you and I look at the incarnation, the word becoming flesh like us and the word dwelling among us and with us, that is what causes a Christian wonder. Amen? It's amazing. How could it be that God would draw near to us? How could it be that he is fully God, fully man? But that's why we worship. Because if you could understand him, he wouldn't be God. Be encouraged. He's meant to blow your mind because he's God. If you, if you can get a hold of it and you can understand it, I guarantee you it's not divine. That's a part of the wonder of what it means to be a Christian. Amen? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we pray today and even in the coming weeks throughout the Christmas season that there would be a divine apprehension of wonder in our hearts again. Would we recapture as we look to the incarnation, the truth of who you are and what you have done? And would we stand amazed? Would songs erupt from our hearts and minds? Would we lay hold of this truth and cling to the truth of what John captures in nine simple words? And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Would we proclaim that and sing it and pray it and evangelize it and disciple it? Confident that you have drawn near to people who did not ask for you, who did not want you, who did not even know you. but who through giving us the truth, incarnating into our life and into our world, gave us the right to become children of God. Father, may belief in the truth deepen in us. Would we receive by faith like little children all of what you have done? And Father, would you recapture wonder in our hearts this Christmas season? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.